welcome back as we continue our study and overview of the entire scope of the Bible. Um, last week we covered the book of Genesis, a book that we're uh, likely very familiar with, and we divided that book up into three sections, uh, primeval history, chapters 1 through 11, patriarchal history, chapters 12 through 36, and Egyptian history, chapters 37 to 50. And, and as we surveyed those three sections, we saw that Moses was answering the question, who is God? And we saw the answers were that he is the creator and giver of life. We also asked the question, who are we? We are his fallen people restored to fellowship with him according to his covenant promises. And where are we going? Well, we're, we're going to the promised land. But we're not talking about merely the land of Canaan, though it is beautiful. We are talking about the new heavens and the new earth in an ultimate sense. This is how the author of Hebrews understands the promise of land all throughout Genesis. Read uh, Hebrews eleven fourteen to 16 and, and you'll see that it was by faith that that Abraham and the patriarchs sought after a, a, a city whose, whose, whose maker and, and builder is God. This is how Joseph understood things, as, as we read last week at the end of the book of, of Genesis in chapter 50, verses 24 to uh, 25, he says, And Joseph said to the brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. This statement from Joseph is a declaration of certainty that God will fulfill his promise, that he will take his people out of the land of Egypt. But what's more, he says, when he takes you out, you're to bring my body with you. Why? Because the promised land is about more than physical land. It's the hope of the resurrection. And so that's going to be kind of the backdrop that we, that we look at today as we get into the book of Exodus. But one more brief note uh, that uh, we weren't able to cover as fully as I would have liked to last time from the book of Genesis. That will really help us, again, see the framework of the whole of Scripture. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2 in verse 9, we read that the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that that I bring that up because in, in the early chapters of Genesis, we tend to focus more on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because that's just where our, action, our, our eye is drawn because that's in some sense where the action is, for lack of a better term. Man falls because he partakes of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so that's that's how we think of that story. And even though there's a very good reason for that, we, we tend to do so to the exclusion of the consideration of the tree of life. But remember, in Genesis chapter 3, even though uh, God has extended the offer of the promise of the coming Messiah in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, and even though... Adam and Eve express faith in that promise when Adam names his wife Eve, the mother of all living, looking for the son that she would have. And even though God uh, covers their nakedness, covers their shame, a picture uh, of forgiveness and of, of atonement, even though there is all of that, God still casts them out of the garden. 
Why? Genesis 3.22 says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, so God is, is, is what he's about to say, is designed to prevent man from taking of the tree of life. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at every, excuse me, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Promise of the gospel, faith in the promise, forgiveness, all of that's there, but there is still more to come. There is the tree of life that, that, that the, the patriarchs are looking for. They're looking for a return to that. They're looking for, for full restoration. And it's found actually at the end of our Bible. In Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of, water, of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves were for the, of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You could, in some sense, sum up the Bible this way. It's the story of how Jesus rescues us from sin and secures for us the hope of eternal life. But then taking it a step further, we want to acknowledge that the Bible symbolizes that hope by this tree. That said, you could sum up the Bible this way. It's about the way back to the tree of life, which is, of course, as we know, only through the blood of Jesus. How do we get there? Jesus prayed, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so that's what Moses is doing in the writing of the Pentateuch. He's, he's revealing the one true God. And more specifically, he's revealing the Lord Jesus Christ who has been sent. He's, he's telling the, them in the, in the wilderness of the Messiah to come. This is Jesus' understanding of the Pentateuch. He says to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote of me. John 5, 46. And so Moses writes of Jesus, as we said last week. In Genesis, he reveals Jesus as the creator and giver of life. In Exodus, which is our study today, he reveals Jesus as the redeemer. In Leviticus, which we'll see next week, he reveals Jesus as the sanctifier. Numbers, Jesus as the protector, and finally Deuteronomy, Jesus as the ruler. And we'll get there as we work through this. So today, and for the rest of our time in the Pentateuch, we're going to look at how Jesus leads his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into the promised land flowing with milk and honey. This is Paul's summary of the Exodus. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes these words. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate 
the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That's Paul's understanding of, of what's going on in the lives of the Israelites as they're receiving the Pentateuch. They have been baptized into Moses, and they're being led and supplied and fed by the Lord Jesus himself. And the book of Exodus then uh, properly falls rather neatly into two parts. It's about deliverance and dwelling. You might say the story of Exodus could be summed up in one sentence. Jesus delivers his people that they might dwell with him for his own glory. Uh, Exodus is, the, is, is that story, how he sovereignly delivers his people in chapters 1 to 15. That's the first big section of the book. That's the big narrative section. So that they might dwell with him. And we see what that looks like in chapters 16 to 40. And he does this for his own glory. And all of this was promised multiple times in Genesis. And in Genesis 15, 13 to 14, God tells Abraham that his descendants will, will be captives in a land that is not theirs for 430 years. Uh, we already looked at it in, in, in the end of Genesis with Joseph telling his brothers that, that the Lord would come to deliver them. Uh, which is important to note because everything that happens in this book is a direct outworking directly tied to God's covenant promise to Abraham. Uh, and not only is it foreshadowed in, in, in Genesis, but that's explicitly said in Exodus chapter 2. It says in Exodus 2.24, And God heard the groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So God is telling us early on in the book that everything that's about to unfold, everything that he's about to do is a direct uh, outworking of his faithfulness to this covenant. This tells us that not only did God promise the events of this book would take place, but also that he keeps that promise. God saw and God knew. God watches over his people. He sees the afflictions and the hardships of our lives. He knows them all. And one day he will wipe away every tear from our eye. And so as we look at God delivering us that we might dwell with him, well, those will be our two big sections. Uh, but it is helpful to have a little bit more detailed of an outline. And I'll just read this off for us. Uh, chapters 1 to 15, that's the first big section, Jesus delivers. And in that section we see the raising up of Moses in the first six chapters. Then we see the, the plagues uh, on Egypt and chapters 7 to 12, and then the Exodus event itself in chapters 13 to 14. And then dwelling with Jesus, we have them coming to Mount Sinai in chapters 17 to 31. We have the golden calf incident uh, in 32 to 34. And then we have the tabernacle being built in 35 to 40. So first of all, Jesus delivers his people. Uh, so this is First, the, the first almost half of the book of Exodus, this is, again, as we said, the, the action-packed narrative that's really making one point. God delivers his people from evil through a mediator. God delivers his people from evil through a mediator. And, and let's look then at that first uh, mediator of the Old Covenant himself. Let's look at Moses. Uh, in the opening chapters of Exodus, we see God's sovereignty in Moses' life in a special way. It just so happens that 
while there's an edict that all the male children of the Israelites are to be killed, that, that his mother uh, preserves his life, that she keeps him safe. And it just so happens that when she can no longer do so and she places him in the wicker basket that he just so happens to be found by Pharaoh's daughter. And it just so happens that his sister uh, is, is there to see, uh, see Pharaoh's daughter retrieve baby Moses out of the water and offer to supply a nurse so that Moses is not only equipped with the, the finest things of life, and namely the best education available on the planet in the house of Pharaoh, but also that he gets to be raised by his own mother. Moses is granted by God's grace access to, to, to great education, to military expertise, which will be significant as he leads the, a whole nation of people. But he's also uh, shown the kindness of God in, in being nursed and raised and taught by his mother the things of God. Moses also shows himself in these opening chapters to be a man of great character and faith. That's how the author of Hebrews writes of him, that, that by faith Moses uh, chose rather to be afflicted with the people of God than all the finest things of Egypt, which was the world power at the time. He, he was taught the things of God by his own mother, even as a child. It wasn't like the Prince of Egypt, where there's this shocking revelation of who Moses really is, if you've seen that uh, movie that, that he didn't know all along. No, there's, there's no such record of anything in the scriptures, and, and the Bible indicates that he made a conscientious choice to align with his people when he when he killed the Egyptian slave driver. Of course, we know that Moses is a fallible man, but he is a great man. He's commissioned by God to go and lead his people out of Egypt in Exodus 3, 6-8. This man then is going to be God's mouthpiece to the people of God, but also his mouthpiece to the enemies of God, from whom the people of God must be delivered. And here is the plan. Moses is to go to Pharaoh and to tell him to let the Hebrews go. Pharaoh is going to say no. Pharaoh's heart will be progressively hardened throughout this portion of the narrative. And it's, his heart gets hardened as all of these plagues are being unleashed on the people of Egypt. Why does God do it this way? Why is it that the Lord says in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, Why is it that the Lord says in Exodus chapter 5, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me. But Pharaoh answers, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. God uses the stubbornness of Pharaoh for his glory. The Lord says himself in this own book, Exodus 9.16, I have raised you up. This is the Lord speaking to Pharaoh. I have raised you up, he says, for this very purpose, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. We, we 
This is summed up in our children's catechism. Why did God create you and all things? For his own glory. So why did God make Pharaoh? For his own glory. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. What then is the purpose for which God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass? For his own glory. God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he might unleash all of these plagues, the great Red Sea moment, all of them, so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And we know that that worked out exactly that way. We know that that's the direct result. We know that when uh, Joshua sends the spies into Jericho, and they come to Rahab's house, and Rahab tells them in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that everybody is terrified because you all are here. Because we heard what your God did to Egypt. And if he did that to them, we shudder to think of what he could do to us. And, and even beyond Rahab and the people of Jericho, we are still talking about how God glorified his name and the judgment of his enemies some thousands of years later. This is not the part of the gospel that we talk about much, but it is true. The other thing that's important to note about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is that it does work both ways. It's not as if God took a, a neutral person and made him antagonistic, but rather the scripture records when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses, Exodus nine thirty four and following. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. In other words, it's not as if Pharaoh was about to relent and God stopped him against his own will. Rather, God hardened him in the direction that he himself already wanted to go. It's, it's very much like what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. They did not want to have God in their own minds. Therefore, God gave them over to a debased mind. They, they did not see fit to, to acknowledge God as Lord in their heart. Therefore, he gave them up to a corrupt heart, etc., and so forth. Pharaoh wanted to resist God, so God, in his judgment against the sin, gave him over even further to the sinful desires of his heart. God could have stopped him. He could have saved him. But for the sake of the glory of his name, he instead hardened him so that the whole world would know that there is a God in Israel who rules and reigns over even the most powerful monarchs of the earth. Is God just in doing this? Yes. He's not forcing Pharaoh to act against his will. He's giving him over to his own sinful desires. Also, it is in the final plague the death of the firstborn son, that we actually get the most clear picture of the gospel in the whole book, which is saying something because the gospel is all over the book of Exodus. But I can't not mention the Passover meal, which is instituted the night of the final plague. As we've already said, the final plague is the death of the firstborn son. And the Hebrews are spared the death of their firstborn son by what? By the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb protects the whole household, most explicitly the children. 
because other than the fact that they were God's chosen people, there was no real difference between the people of, of Israel and the people of Egypt. Both were rebels against God. But one group was protected by the blood of the Lamb from the wages of sin, which is death, and the other were not. And for God to pass over your sins, he has to lay them on his son, his only son, his beloved son. Just as Abraham did not have to sacrifice Isaac because the Lord would provide for himself a sacrifice, so he would for the sins of his people, through the blood of the Lamb, provide a, provide a sacrifice. The Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. That is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now for the Exodus event itself, which is the paradigmatic Old Testament picture of redemption. God finally delivers his people from the clutches of Pharaoh by parting the Red Sea. The point is that God did this in such a way that it was clear that he was the one to receive all glory. It wasn't because Pharaoh made the right decision and let the people go. It wasn't because Moses was so great that that the wind and sea obey him. No, it was God and God alone who delivered his people in a supernatural way. And so his people respond by glorifying and praising his name as is fitting in chapters in chapter 15. And that is the first half of the book, God delivering his people, Jesus delivering his people. And so we'll do the, the second half of the book much more briefly. Uh, what, what's important to know about this section is God is preparing his people to dwell with him after having delivered them. That is to say that it's not as if God is giving us these things in the latter portion of the book, which is including uh, the, the Ten Commandments themselves. He does not say, do these commandments and then I'll save you. He doesn't say, keep the law good enough, and then <clears throat> I will bless you. Rather, because I have saved you, because I have delivered you, therefore, keep these words. That's how he begins in the prologue. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And because I did that, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take my name in vain, etc., and so on. I have placed my name on you, therefore you will not take it in vain. I have saved you from the powers of this world, therefore you will remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That is... That is the, the point being made there. They, this, is, this is how we dwell with God. We dwell with God by, by honoring his law, by keeping his commandments. But we also dwell with God ultimately not because of our obedience. Obedience is what it looks like to, to follow in the ways of God, but, but that cannot sustain us. We, we continue to dwell with God through the mediation of another. Uh, because as soon as Israel gets the Ten Commandments, you know what happens. Actually, before they even get them, while Moses is up on the mountain, 
we have the golden calf incident in Exodus 32 to 34. And it's really a, a remarkable passage of Scripture where, where Israel rebels against the Lord. They, they worship a false idol. And the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 33, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. So God says, after they've broken the Ten Commandments, after they have rebelled against him, he says, I'm still going to give you the land because I made that promise. But, he says in Exodus 33.3, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Then in verse 4 it says, The people heard this disastrous word, and they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. The covenant was never ultimately about the land. The blessings of the covenant were never ultimately about the land. It's about dwelling with God. And the people of Israel, in this moment of, of great repentance, they see that, they recognize that. And it is through the intercession of Moses and his prayer to the Lord at the end of the chapter that, that we find that dwelling with God looks like honoring his law and keeping his commands, but it is sustained by the mediatorial prayers of another. Moses prays that this excellent prayer that we, we don't have time to work through in chapter 33, beginning in verse 12. And it is on the basis of that mediation that God relents from his decision to not go on with the people of Israel, but rather to continue to dwell with them. And you know today that we have a mediator with God, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If anyone uh, confesses our, their sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who whoever lives according to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, whoever lives to make intercession for his saints. So dwelling with God looks like obeying God. It's sustained by a mediator. And then lastly, uh, to really drive home this point, we see uh, what by many people is, is probably seen to be a fairly dry and, uh, and difficult to read section of the book. And this is really where uh, reading of the Torah tends to fall off for most people. Uh, you, you begin your Bible on a year plan and you're doing great through uh, Genesis and you're doing great through the first part of Exodus and then you get hunkered down about here because we have in the last five chapters of the book all the all the regulations and instructions about the building of the tabernacle. And there's there's a ton of detail about all of the construction that goes into it and about the garb of the priests and, and all of it. And it's all important. But the big picture of all this imagery is, is actually uh, a, a picture of, 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 of return to the Garden of Eden. Um, Hebrews chapter 8 makes this case. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 3, uh, the author writes, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest to also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, 
since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So all of this stuff that's going on in the end of the book of Exodus was was according to a pattern that God had shown Moses. That is to say, it is a picture, it is a, it is a placeholder. And, and what happens to the tabernacle? The, the priest wears a, a vestment that has on it the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the fullness of the people of God. And he enters into the Holy of Holies. He enters into the tabernacle that's, that's, that's decorated uh, with all of this uh, floral, if you will, designs and patterns. It's a picture of the people of God dwelling with God in the Holy of Holies in, in, the, in, in the garden. But it's better. It's 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 the it's the 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 heavenly reality that even the Garden of Eden was a type and a shadow of. It's a foreshadow of our dwelling with God, which will be in the new heavens and the new earth, as we talked about in the beginning of this lesson. But but how do we get there? How do we get there? How do we get to this picture? Exodus ends on one of the great cliffhangers in all of Scripture. The tabernacle has been constructed and it's got all of the garden imagery and, and we, we understand that the priest is supposed to go in and, and be a picture of God, uh, or excuse me, a picture of the people of God dwelling with a holy God. But in Exodus chapter 40, the book ends this way, beginning in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And, and and the key verse to pick up there is in 35, it says, And Moses was not able to enter. Moses, the most holy man, the meekest of all men, the 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 leader through the Red Sea, the, the one that, that intercedes and mediates for them and their sin, he is not able to enter. Why? Because the only way to enter the presence of God. The only way to dwell with him peaceably for all eternity is through the shed blood of the Lamb. And that's what we'll look at next week when we consider uh, the overview of the book of Leviticus. Let's pray. God in heaven, we give thanks to you for your word and for its clear revelation of you who are our God and who dwells with us through the mediation of your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for him. And we thank you for your spirit that enlightens our minds that we might draw near to you through him. We pray now, Father, that as we uh, consider these things, that we would uh, grow in an appreciation and affection for Christ who has made the way for us to dwell with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.